Pod Save the King! Hello and welcome to Pod Save the King. My name's Zoe Forsey, I'm your host this week, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Tessa Dunlop for a very special episode about her new book, Elizabeth and Philip, which focuses on the late uh, monarch and Prince Philip's love story, romance, and kind of as well as that, the how they supported each other through a truly unique life I think so hi Tessa welcome to the podcast hello thank you for having me now I absolutely love this book it was such an interesting take on the you know them as a couple and there's almost like the three sections of it I found there's kind of their the young you know their young romance and falling in love but there's also how they supported each other and you know the, the different sides of it and then how the the family monarchy and how it will look going forward which are the kind of different aspects that I wanted to chat to you about but let's go back to the start and kind of early on in the book because you spoke a lot about the uh, kind of obviously the young meeting they met and fell in love that's something that we you know we've heard a fair bit over the years but what I found really interesting is that um, you know the kind of concerns that perhaps that you found in your research for this book about Philip as a match for the then princess Elizabeth uh, and the queen but one lovely line that you said was that he was her first choice and she was his which I thought was really really lovely. Yeah it's interesting that early period I knew quite a lot about forms of dating in World War II because of books I'd previously written and I'd worked a lot with their generation and actually I lean on some of my friends I now consider them from that generation the very last centenarians and nonagenarians to guide me through the importance of of their relationship kind of symbolically but also guide me through the etiquette at the time and the form Philip famously meets Elizabeth meaningfully when she's 13 and really from then on is keeping a bit of an eye on her, writing to her when he's overseas, her, his cousin ribbing him saying, hey, she's just a baby. What are you doing writing to cousin Elizabeth when he at the same time is dating very beautiful Osler Benning when he's back in Britain, that is, when he's on leave. And I have that on good authority because Pamela Rose, one of my Bletchley girls, uh, was a friend of Osler's and remembers this Greek prince. She said it was very disappointing. He was so traditional and English seeming when we met. <laughs> she was expecting somebody. But that Pamela was a debonair actress, so would have embraced this idea of a foreign Balkan prince, but she wasn't representative of the thinking in Britain at the time. So what you have is a contradiction, really. Philip is to the manor born. Through, through both sides of his family, he is in some way can reach back to the Windsor household. You know, he's the third cousin of Elizabeth. Uh, his Uncle Mountbatten is a cousin of the king. And so it goes on. His grandmother was born at Windsor Castle. So on one front, this was totally normal that he would end up dating another member of a royal family. But on the other hand, he was a prince in exile. He had no, let alone a realm, he had no real material means of any sort. His family had had not only had bad luck bestowed upon them, kicked out of, of Greece, but also they'd sort of split up. His sisters, unfortunately, all seemingly married to Germans just after uh, the, the Germans um, had been reincarnated as the devil nation. 
So this was very problematic. So you have these two compass lines, if you like, one pulling him towards Elizabeth and it's seeming all normal and fine. And the other one in the other direction. What I was very struck by was not just the stuffiness and the stiffiness of the court, including who we better know as the Queen Mother. She was never a real Philip fan, uh, expressing their clear disdain for this interloper, nay, fortune hunter, but also the press. And actually, the mirror, I've got to say, Zoe, was oh, one yeah. of the more sceptical. Yeah, the left-leaning press. That's interesting because I think nowadays we tend to think of it being more the, the male that's the, the real rock violer uh, that, that tends to come out, maybe the news of the world in the olden days before it collapsed, the, the ones who are really sort of pushing the envelope in terms of what they can print. But it was actually led by Sunday Pictorial, which was left leaning the Guardian, the Mirror, this idea post-abdication in 36, that really we want a say in what happens in our royal family. They're not just any old married couple, they're ours. And uh, the, the average, especially the average British male post-war doesn't like the idea of our crown jewel heir to the throne marrying Johnny Foreigner. The rules were changed in 1917. Thank you very much. We'd really rather like a Brit, a commoner. Well, the Queen Mother was hardly a commoner. Her lineage goes back to Robert the Bruce. But you know what I'm saying? She was a, 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 a buxom lass with a combination of English and Scottish blood. She did the trick nicely. Not so, Philip. He was very clearly foreign and sort of the wrong sort of foreign, partly associated with the disreputable Nazi flirting uh, Balkan crown. And on the other hand, most of the blood coursing through his veins was German. And on their wedding day, Elizabeth and Philip's wedding day, the mirror actually runs a picture of boy Philip in a Greek costume just to underline the fact that the future queen's marrying a foreigner. It was very funny when I found that uh, that front page of the mirror. It just really made me laugh, actually. And that's something you can never imagine happening now because, you know, looking back to when Kate, you know, Kate and William got married, Meghan and Harry, and even the kind of, you know, less senior roles like uh, Eugenie when she married Jack, you can't imagine there being anything negative on that day because it's seen as such a celebration. So it's it's really interesting to see how the kind of times have changed as well of now I think we see them as couples and we want them to be happy but that ownership that people at that time had as you said well she's our she's going to be our queen one day so we get to it's it's really interesting it is it's very much property of state women that this idea of a companionate marriage was coming much more into fashion the idea <laughs> naively that we could possibly think we'd be sexually and emotionally fulfilled by our spouse forever and ever um, as, the, as the marriage commission pointed out post-war well we're expecting far too much so more marriages will fail and and they did um there's a question that we'll probably come to about which sort of marriage philip and elizabeth had of course but that there was this romantic idea and expectation especially by women who'd served in the war they, they were going to go back into the home this wasn't a great period of equality and liberation the late 40s 50s but they did expect something like equality within their marriage and I know I spoke to some of the women Daphne and Barbara who are still alive and they very much wanted to see in that relationship Philip and Elizabeth the idea that there was true love and I absolutely I'm 100% convinced the Queen was from the get-go besotted by Philip she had a proper schoolgirl crush she was cutting out pictures of him in a scrapbook Philip had a mixture of reasons for needing Elizabeth 
and that I think built up as love when in a different way he had obviously experience he'd had beautiful glamorous girlfriends he'd also been at sea we know what men get up to at sea well we probably best we don't know actually um but um and, and she was not like Osla Benning she was not sort of a catalog model type person never pretended to be she was the very opposite she was steadfast she was calm she was kind she was secure and that was something that his life desperately desperately lacked so I can see why it was deeply appealing and of course unlike Osla Belling Osla Belling Osla Benning who was from Canada and lacked even a real home let alone a realm the queen did have or the future queen did have one of the finest inheritances in the world and that let's face it women often marry men don't they who are bankers and of wealth and I don't think that we can chastise Philip for recognizing that he needed to boost his own personal situation and standing and so at that point at that first meeting what was the you know what was princess elizabeth's situation so she was obviously you know kind of early teens and it was on a family trip to the naval base wasn't it that they met with her and she was there with her father and her sister that's right the whole shooting match were there all four and um it was reported in the papers fairly obliquely, they're sort of witnessing a march past, building up to war, the tensions were ratcheting up in Europe, and uh, Philip was assigned to sort of, partly by Mountbatten, his violently ambitious uncle, by the way, he was assigned to chaperone the princesses, Elizabeth, still wearing the same buckled shoes as her little sister, never did her any favours, really, having little Margaret, who was just a little bit too young, four years younger. They always dressed in a slightly unfortunate fashion. Philip did lots of showing off and took his rowboat out into the sea, and of course, Elizabeth was blown away by it. She then, um, having had a very sheltered upbringing, mainly governesses and nannies, and a bit of a goldfish bowl, she then has an even more constrained experience, locked up more or less in Windsor Castle because um, of war. The, the, the anti-aircraft guns all around the perimeters of the wall, the, the, uh, the walls of the castle. She arrives there in early 1940, having been holed up even more lonely in Balmoral. And you can understand why the idea of this young naval cadet this extraordinary fair blonde good looks and confidence really stood out for her because she then doesn't really have access to her own peers for for the duration of the war occasionally a grenadier guard might pop along and there'd be some sort of foosty dance with her parents watching on but uh, generally she's cloistered the newspapers commented on it her own governess commented on it and in fact those wonderful Windsor Diaries that were published a couple of years ago commented on it so she she had a very straightened time and you can understand and for all girls on the home front waiting that the cachet of men had never been higher all girls had someone to write to some boy in uniform their hero Elizabeth and Philip weren't uncommon crashing down the aisle. It was a record year for marriages, 1947. They came back heroes. Yeah, the girls had served, but the heroes were the men. And, and Philip was Elizabeth's hero. And she'd absolutely remained and just dug her feet in about him being the one. And it really was very lucky if you think how few suitable men she had met. A lot of them were eliminated by the war, incidentally. Either they died or they ended up in, a, in an enemy country when the papers were speculating pre-war about who she might marry. So it's hugely fortuitous that Philip, unlike his sisters, was fighting on the right side of the war. And she clearly found him deeply attractive. He was deeply attractive. As Daphne, 99, served in the same service, the ATS, as the Queen put it. Well, the thing is, Philip was absolutely handsome. Well, Elizabeth, I mean, she could look nice, but Philip was absolutely handsome. This 
aesthetic inequality between the two. I did point out to Daphne that perhaps Elizabeth had other perks. <laughs> but it was, I think for him, and you notice it when you see the old fo photos, dashing is a term that doesn't really get oh. used much now, but dash, it is that term, isn't it? And I remember lots of people that I spoke to, obviously I'm complete royal geek, so have seen all the photos of him when he was younger lots of times. But when he passed away, loads of people I spoke to were like, I've never seen Philip younger. Yeah. And it was really interesting. And I remember do you remember for the uh, Jubilee, the I think it was the BBC or ITV did that beautiful kind of photos of the Queen and they had the photos of her when she was younger. And there was gorgeous words from her of the top that said, oh, sometimes it's nice that younger people remember that we were young once as well. Mm. And I think mm. it was that really interesting side of it. Now, there, and that's, well, uh, just to interrupt you, just to pick up on that, what was fascinating about Philip and Elizabeth and it was partly they were granted the agency because they Elizabeth arrives on the throne very young and she's given early duties because her father's prematurely ill but they they are representative of the young generation they, they spoke to to young Britain in a way that I don't see our contemporary royal family speaking to the young generation. And that was, I think, one of their unique selling points. They were gifted it partly by unfortunate personal circumstances, but it was really, really uh, hugely empowering for them. Uh, and, and, and I think we underestimate just how significant it was. So they were seen as, as you said, that the perfect couple when they, you know, they got engaged, but that was, it wasn't announced until slightly later on. They got married uh, still when rationing was going on and to the point of people were so supportive of them, everyone was sending in their uh, coupons, weren't they? Their ration tokens, yeah. help with the material for the dress. And the way you've ex uh, explained it in the book is that people kind of looked up to their relationship and it was kind of something that that people could aspire to as kind of, you know, normal commoners, you know, fit the game. I'm, yeah. I want to find a love like that. I want to find that support. Um, and I think people took comfort in that at a time that was still extremely difficult for, for us as a country. It was hugely important, the Elizabeth and Philip match. 200 million people on the radio splashed all across the world in terms of newspaper coverage and absolutely deliberately orchestrated by church and state. When we talk about the establishment, there really was an establishment then, and it went from the top right down to the bottom of society, and the church galvanizing and using this marriage, this sermon, this projection of an idealized companionate marriage to inspire the nation and beyond, of course, Britain considered itself much bigger than this, this is parochial set of islands. But there was a bit of a moral crisis going on. It should be said, the early part of the war, huge numbers had got married and now they were all trying to get divorced. They'd crashed down the aisle in a hurry before the bombs dropped. And like never before, there was terrible sort of national anxiety and public debate about, oh my goodness, the state of the nation, the moral state, we're almost as bad as America. And so it was seen that this was a fresh start. This was the pin-up nuclear family. And actually it was a brand that had been started under George V, the avuncular George, fond of May in a way that often kings and queens weren't. We saw it developed by us for the firm, very much the positioning of the Windsors during the war when they were very much together, didn't leave, stuck with London, etc. And then it really reaches this dizzy height, this pinnacle of family monarchy under Elizabeth and Philip, who then crash down the aisle, leading the way for a record-breaking year, and have the standard four children that all baby boomer mums did. So they almost ticked every box and they look good to boot. 
Now, while the Queen and Philip were the kind of ideal couple, and we know how important marriage was to the Queen, she was supported, uh, not supported, she was surrounded by a lot of divorce, uh, obviously her sister, Princess Margaret. And then, you know, with the next generation and her four children that you mentioned, three of the four ended up getting, you know, separated and then divorced, including her heir. Do we know much about how she felt about that? Because, you know, I know that there was obviously all the things around Charles and Diana, but to have all the children go through it as well, obviously, Anne and Andrew and Sarah Ferguson. How did she take that that we know of? Yeah, it was very difficult uh, for, for the Queen and Philip, but I think it was almost harder for the children because Philip and Elizabeth were such a tough act to follow. When you see, and I start, I look back at papers from 1981, this stylized, picture perfect, Diana and Charles wedding, almost trying to replicate what happened under Philip and Elizabeth. But of course, times had changed hugely. It was ridiculously naive. And Elizabeth and Philip have to shoulder part of the blame here because they were instrumental too in getting that couple together and certainly signed it off. And you could say, well, Charles was a big boy, could decide who he married by himself, but it doesn't work like that in monarchy. We know it doesn't. And it certainly didn't for Charles and Diana. There was a lot of pressure coming his way because of this family monarchy brand. The great failure, of course, was Edward. The abdic couldn't have another bachelor kid, bachelor prince who didn't knuckle down and get, get on with it. And part of the duty is to find a comely wife. So Charles was under huge pressure. And one of the reasons is because they'd staked so much of their identity on this idea of being our number one family. And it was slightly naive, given beneath the surface two things. One is within their own family, Margaret's very sorry story, from the word go, not able to marry the man she loves because he's divorced, and then herself being the first member of the close royal family who gets divorced, finally signed off in 1978. And in the interim period, just how much has changed socially? So while you have the frozen image of marriage in Philip and Elizabeth with their perfect four children, in inverted commas, um, you have beneath the surface a massively changing social scene. And it's not just incidentally Margaret, there's several divorces within uh, um, Elizabeth's close family. Early on, it's only rich people that can really afford to get divorced. So I think that it was naive, to put it mildly, to think that given the pressures also of a 24-7 press, that Diana and Charles could pull off what Elizabeth and Philip had managed to pull off, especially when the rules of marriage had changed. And for neither Charles nor Diana, they weren't as invested in each other as Elizabeth and Philip were. Because absolutely clearly Philip was the monarch's first choice or the future monarch's first choice. Elizabeth wanted Philip. There was, there was no clear, untrammeled, without a question, des desire from either Charles or Diana in the same way. And also for Philip, it changed Philip's life. You know, it, it gave him a platform for life. It gave him a realm. It stopped him being, I mean, people go, oh, poor him. He had to give up his naval career. Could you, could you name one admiral for me, Zoe? No, yeah, you exactly. Can, you, I know exactly yeah. what you mean. It's, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't feel sorry for, for, for Philip. He got bag loads out of that marriage. Well done him. Good for him. But it, yeah, so he uh, retired early from his naval career. Lots of us have career disappointments. We won't say too much boo-hoo. Um, but he did work hard in his role as consort. So I, I, I'm a fan of Philip's. But it did leave this just very difficult position. 
But also if we look, drill into what a marriage and what the expectations of marriage were, by the 1980s, if you're not happy in your marriage, you get divorced. That's, I mean, Diana's parents had got divorced. The writing was on the wall from the word go. And we, I remember vividly watching the, the wedding myself as a child and hearing sort of parents and grandparents saying, oh, the queen will be disappointed because she's a great believer in marriage. Well, she was the defender of the faith. She kind of had to be. She was in this religious straitjacket. But she also knew that divorce and royalty is hugely complex because of their role within the established church and as head of state. So the stakes were really, really high. They were high in 47, but they had the foundation stones and they both had sufficient levels of emotional investment in the marriage. And it wasn't the same for Charles and Diana in a much more flighty era, in some ways a more forgiving era. You could get divorced in a way that was much harder back then. But also, I think that posh, particularly posh, but not only posh, propensity to turn a blind eye at misdemeanors and infidelities no longer existed in the same way. So Philip and Elizabeth, rumours abound. And I took um, quite a lot of inspiration when writing this book from my own grandfather's story. He was a, an eminent physician knighted for services to medicine and the queen. And through his elevated medical position had access to all sorts of posh women. He married one but at, who looked rather like the queen, but actually his long-term lover was the Duchess of Buccleuch. Now, I never, we never knew this. We, it was always the Dunlops, you know, Sir, Sir Derek and Lady Dunlop, but he was, and, and Marjorie turned a blind eye, thank you very much. It does explain why my grandmother was incredibly grumpy, but there we go. And I've only, this has only come to light for me because 40 years later, um, there's letters from the Duchess of Buccleuch writing to her friend, what a loyal lover Sir Derek Dunlop was. So that's good. Good to know he was loyal to someone. <laughs> um, I'm not suggesting that, that Philip. It um, be strange to research. It must be very <laughs> strange. quite accidental. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not suggesting Philip, you know, and uh, also invested heavily in the Duchess of Buccleuch. I know he didn't. But I'm just giving that as an example of what, an independent marriage, those hewn in, the, in, in between the wars looked like, and what women and sometimes men were prepared to tolerate in the name of matrimonial, uh, matrimonial harmony, should we say, certainly external harmony. Uh, marriage was viewed as something um, for delivering progeny, for protecting property, for also having emotional security on one level, sure, but not necessarily having an exclusivity that was later expected. And I think certainly and understandably expected by, for instance, the young Diana. That's one thing that I find really interesting because at the time it was obviously seen as something that was so negative and it was the marriage failed. And, you know, we every, there was so much talk about how, as you said, disappointed the Queen would be. But now it's something that I think would be, you know, everyone would say it's a shame, but I think people would see, well, they were both extremely unhappy. They were mm -hmm. both, you know, they both said, but both have admitted that, you know, neither were faithful during the period of separation or, you know, that you know we, we that's a different podcast we could talk about that for a long time but now it's something that's you know celebrated okay well great they can both leave it they can both go on and find people who make them happier and it's it's just again that note of how even in you know kind of within the last 50 years life and attitude towards marriage and love and happiness specifically for a woman how you know women should be allowed to be happy as well and that must be something that's really interested to uh for you to have researched is that something that you found when obviously they 
became divorced looking at society as a whole do you think it became more sorry I've explained this terribly but do you think it's something that society became more accepting of divorce seeing that they'd done it yeah in other words that Charles is a representative of his generation and Elizabeth and yeah. Philip of theirs and therefore we see our version of us in him and a flawed version in a way that previous generations saw an idealized version of themselves in Elizabeth and Philip possibly the problem with that and I think that there is something in it is that do you want to look up to your royal family? That is sort of the purpose of them in a way, unrealistic as it may be. So they wear all their uh, paraphernalia, their, their honorary military uniforms, for instance, and that that's very important for the discipline and hierarchical structure of the military to have someone to look up to. If you're looking also for that to be mirrored within society, so they're sort of wearing more gorgeous clothes than us and they've got tiaras unlike us, and they're also their marriages are put, sort of put out there as, as examples, then when they fail, they it also sort of magnifies their failure doesn't it because they're, they're big up on the stage it's bigger than just our little failure it's like a giant failure because it's been refracted through the world's press and I also think we don't always want reminded of our of society's failures do we so it's a harder sell that it, it on some level it makes Charles more sympathetic but generally when you have marital failure breakdown you there are victims involved and both sides can be victims of their own misfortune. Of course, with Diana then dying, it seemed always heavily against, you know, the narrative. And she wasn't part, and we see this even with the Megan scenario where you're, they're the wrong side of the establishment and therefore immediately it can, that can cast the royal family in a seemingly uncaring mode, which isn't necessarily fair. It's just because they have the infrastructure of the in institution around them and the machinery of that institution. So that is a way of me fudging it and saying, well, you could argue, so they were, fa if, 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 if Philip and Elizabeth were family monarchy, now with Charles, we have um, blended family monarchy or flawed <laughs> family monarchy, but it, it's not quite such a, a coffee table book headline grabbing uh, hook is it uh, that that is my one worry for the current royal family is that they don't speak to their that, well first of all because of the way the families have come and, and people living much longer there isn't an equivalent really young elizabeth and philip at the moment there's middle-aged parents and young children and of course there's the loss of Harry and Meghan and I think we shouldn't pretend they are a loss because they are a loss in terms of the appeal of the package now we live in this more flexible diverse era it's far harder to represent the whole of society and to take especially the younger generation with you because it's a much more diverse and in some ways divided society so it's a tougher gig for the Windsors now and it, it is it's a it's a gig that's more questioned because people don't automatically think we need you know the, the hereditary monarchy isn't baked in in the same way it's sort of almost people feel well you need to earn your place and so I'm a monarchist I believe in the separation of the ceremonial from the political but I, I do think that there needs to be some really searching questions about where next for monarchy so that they can have firm roots and those roots have to reach down to to the young and I if you look at the polling 18 to 24 year olds I know they always want to sort of kick mud in the face of the establishment but it's it's not looking great for monarchy among those very young I'm sure you know that as a journalist it, for a big tabloid you know that 
where the reach is and where the popularity sits with the older generations. In fact, you're quite a young monarchist, Zoe. I am, yes. Mm, <laughs> but that's yes. What, and that's what we find lots of our listeners on this podcast as well are and people all around the world, which is really interesting. Like a huge amount of our listeners are based in the US, which is and it's really interesting to see and hear the different sides of that. But as you said, like the Queen, what we knew of the Queen was her and Philip. And it was that kind of strong, steady, you know, as you said, aspire to and that was, I think, really highlighted, you know, when she passed away and among all the Paddington Bears, the big quote that everyone was saying was, well, she's reunited with her strength and stay now. She's mm. back with Philip. They're back together. And there was that lovely uh, quote from uh, Kate, the Princess of Wales, saying that was what Louis apparently said. Oh, he's back. You know, she's back with great granddad now, which I thought was really sweet. But I know what you mean about looking forward, because Charles, we know so many of Charles's flaws, but does that make him more human? It's that different of we should like that more because, you know, it's more transparent. We see more of it, but it's not what we're used to seeing. No, from- that's it. That's it. Uh, and and I, I'm very fond of Charles and he's sort of avuncular and he's, yeah, he's, he's got it wrong in front of us and he had no other option. And therefore, the grace of God go I. And he's also, of course, been this convincing green campaigner, but that's political. So that's also a little bit controversial. Now he's monarch. I, let, let's see how things pan out. Um, let's hope that Montecito doesn't overreach and hope for a more harmonious 2023. Uh, in terms of those sibling relationships. And I think there's still a lot of goodwill left over from the late monarch and Philip's um, reign. And I think that'll carry forward. Now, Saucy, we've mentioned King Charles with Queen Camilla and kind of how their reign is looking at the moment. Obviously, we're very early on. But looking further ahead to when we see, and it feels very bizarre to do it, I still haven't got quite used to saying King Charles yet, but when we get to a point where we see King William and Queen Catherine, they have, so far, obviously 11 years in now, but they have more of that traditional love story, which is still very, very different to Elizabeth and Philip's, but my mind, it's more of a traditional you know, it's more of a modern version of what we saw from them in that they met in met at uni, fell in love, were friends first, and then basically the opposite of Charles and Diana. How do you think that could, you know, kind of stand yeah. up under the strains of monarchy? Well, interestingly, William modelled a lot of his behaviour and the way he wanted to go forward as a key player in the royal family on the late Queen. We know that. Um, and he, he's owned it and they were very close. Um, and they have strong similarities. I think we have to recognise that society is much more divided. So there's no way the royal family can represent the whole nation, more or less, uh, as Elizabeth Philip seemed to speak for them in 1947. Uh, the, the numbers who are getting married uh, have halved. So then there were, I think in 1947, despite the population being much smaller, over half a million, no, over 400. 100,000 couples got married in 1947. The average age of the bride was 22. This was something the whole of society was going through. Nowadays, if you want to have William and Kate as the pin-up nuclear family, so this is family monarchy light, well, you could, but it's worth bearing in mind that actually only 50% of us choose to marry and another 50% of them 
get divorced. So that means that a family monarchy model doesn't ever speak for more than a section of society. They work much harder, I think, now with these diverse campaigns. But again, the idea of a philanthropic monarch or a philanthropic royal family isn't new. It's been with us for over a century. So that needs to be constantly probed and re-examined. Um, obviously, they've become the whipping boy for discomfort around an imperial past for which it's no more William's fault than it is your fault or my fault, but they're the representatives of the establishment. So that's another very tricky course. They've also got the disunited kingdom to manage. So they've got all sorts of currents and confusions that the late Queen and Philip didn't have. They didn't, and they were seen as the benign face of a disappearing empire and a newly emboldened Commonwealth, which again, now the Commonwealth's fraught with all sorts of associations. So I think what I'm trying to say is it's a far tougher gig. I don't think that William is any less of a man than Elizabeth was as a woman. We tend to have turned her into a saint because she was so remarkable in great old age and was remarkable throughout her long reign. But actually, um, she, she had a very set role and she fulfilled it. And I think William could do equally um, well. But I think there will have to be an olive branch at some point with Montecito. I think e even if you're trying to be family monarchy for a section of the nation, it does help if you're on better terms with your brother. I'm not saying that's easy for William. And I, I feel for him. It's very, it's very difficult when you've got these big global players on the other side of the Atlantic seeming to compete with you. But I think there needs to be some kind of bridge building. That's not going to happen immediately. I'm hoping in the, in the medium term, we're going to see some bridges built there because I believe both teams are better than the sum of their parts. You know, gr they're greater than the sum of their parts. And, and I think that that's ultimately what the late queen would have wanted. But I'm a romantic in that respect. I'm a romantic. And the other thing about William, if he keeps on his gentle campaigning, I think he, he strikes the right note with his humility. But I, I think we have to own, and it's painful for Britain because they're a very, very key brand, they're never going to be as big as Elizabeth and Philip were. We're never going to see the like again. That was unique, and it's why we've gone through this extraordinary outpouring of grief at the end of her reign, because we know that was it. That was Britain cast across the world in the form of a young woman, and it was extraordinary, and then a very old one, and with a man, an alpha man, walking two steps behind. That is a very powerful cocktail. And we were lucky to have them, extremely lucky. And I think William, no doubt, feels the same. Now, just before I let you go, I'm going to put you, it's going to be terribly mean and put you on the spot. But obviously, you know lots about the royals and did before you read this, before you started researching this book. What was the kind of most surprising detail or the thing, you know, was there something that you found out during your research that really stands out to you or sticks in your memory? That I thought their marriage was way more complicated than I anticipated. Yeah, and that, that, that was being quite hard to write about and promote in the wake of the late Queen's death. I think I found that writing around some of that challenging, um, especially as the lot is unproven. This will is under wraps. I don't think it's any coincidence as well as under wraps for the next 90 years. Um, I found some of that, yeah, as I say, as a woman, a bit challenging. And also there's a lot of picking your way through the hearsay. I also found it riveting the muscular nature of the press even in the 40s and 50s, which I didn't expect. I thought it was a very modern thing, but it's not. It, they were very present, the press, even in the 40s and 50s. They were never off the hook. And Philip took a while to get used to that. Elizabeth, of course, was born with it. So, um, so thank you for having me on and talking about my book. I most appreciate it. 
thank you so much. So Elizabeth and Philip is out now. Um, you can, I will pop a picture of the cover on our social media feeds so that everyone can see. The, it's a beautiful photo on the cover, actually. I really oh, like thank it. thank you. Really striking. And um, thank you to everyone for listening. As always, we're on social pod, um, at Pod Save on Twitter and Instagram. And until next time. Pod Save the King!